Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Janelle Bowers. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Brand New Day, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan. In our first story, Matt Soderquist finds out if a move to a different part of the state will mean that people stop stealing his bicycles. So I had seven bikes stolen as a kid. Two while I was on them. I know at first glance it may look like I grew up in a peaceful Amish farming community. But I spent my grade school years on the edge of the heights in Muskegon, just a couple blocks from the projects. My mother had always lived up north, or what I like to call the first knuckle middle finger. She'd never heard of the place called Muskegon, let alone traveled there, but when the state mental hospital shut down, she had the choice of being unemployed or embracing the unknown. Sidebar, she was an employee, not a patient. <laughs> Our first day in Muskegon, we went to enroll in school. I hopped out of my booster seat. My sister hopped out. My mom got my sister out of her car seat. We went into school, and we came back out, and both the car seats were gone. Somebody had ganked our car seats. Like, who steals car seats? I wouldn't say that we were poor growing up, but we did get WIC. Great thing about WIC is that you essentially receive bottomless cheese, Cheerios, milk, and what's the last one? We had had tons of peanut butter. (laughs) And juicy juice. We always qualified because my mom was essentially perpetually pregnant, and she didn't tolerate shit for my stepdads. She would kick him to the curb at the sight of you know, any trouble whatsoever. In fact, I'm still Facebook friends with a couple of my stepdads. <laughs> Although I had to unfriend one recently, I, I unfollowed him. Because all he would post was pictures of his cart full of beer and taking bong rips. I'm like, wow, it's really great that you know, you've gotten to the point where you can get trashed every weekend and you're not smoking that dirt weed I used to find in your bowling bag. But I'm pretty sure you owe my mom $27,000 in back child support from my sister who's almost 30. So it's tough not to make those type of comments. But in addition to WIC, we also received reduced lunch, which was an extra added bonus for me because I got to short reprieve daily from the bottomless Cheerios we received. It wasn't until second grade that my first bike got stolen. We were playing street hockey, and I hopped up on my blue Huffy single speed took off to my house, dropped it on the front porch, went in, came out about 30 seconds later, and it was gone. I said, 30 seconds? Where is this going? I looked down the street, and all my friends were gone. I felt like there had been some kind of like glitch in the matrix or a time-space continuum lapse or something. And so I start walking down the street where we had been playing, and I see all my friends back in the alley, and they've got my bike, and they go, Matt, you'll never believe it, but as soon as you went inside, this guy hopped on your bike, and he came down essentially into the lion's den. And he said, they said, we chased after him, took him into the alley. He ghostwrote your bike into the bushes and took off running. If there's one thing that growing up in a rough neighborhood does, it gives you loyal friends. <clears throat> another, gro- another perk of growing up downstate was that essentially we had three months less of winter. 
But for a guy whose birthday is December 11th, it can be hit or miss whether or not that new Huffy gets any miles on it <laughs> before the snow flies. So the year mountain bikes were hot, it was, essentially, it was especially snowy, and it went right in the shed. Now come late March, when I looked out the window and I seen the bike tracks and the footprints coming out of the shed, I knew it was gone. That one really hurt, because I hadn't even ridden it yet. So I pieced together a lowrider bike out of some spare parts. It had a black banana seat, ram's horn handlebars, <laughs> two rows of reflectors on both wheels, chrome suspension. It drew a lot of attention. And it was always a gamble riding your bikes to Big Kmart because it, it, we had to get more reflectors. <laughs> it might sound logical that you know, while we were in there, uh, one of us would stay out with our bikes because sometimes when we would come out, we'd have less reflectors than we went in with. But there was kind of an unwritten understanding between my friends and I that we'd all go in because it was more worthwhile to lose a couple of reflectors rather than have them taken from you while you were out there. So one day playing two-hand touch in the street, a neighbor kid showed up with his brand new bike. We all took turns riding it up and down the block. And when it was my turn, a couple of guys came from across railroad tracks on a big granny bike, one riding on the handlebars. And they said, hey, man, let's race. And I said, absolutely. I've been smoking up and down the block on my, you know, my buddy's new bike. So we took off, and all my friends said, go. And I sped off, got to the end of the block, and I turned around and had a hand on my throat. And they said, get off the bike. And it was like I peered down, and all my friends had already resumed playing football. And now these guys are headed off, speeding off all the way across the tracks already. And have you ever experienced that sinking feeling when you realize you just lost something or broke something that you know you can't replace? It was like slow motion watching those guys take off. But I ran back down to our friends. By the time I got down there, they realized what had happened, and their mom had come out. My friend John John's mom had come out. Now, John John's mom was even deeper in the struggle being a single mom than we were. And I think that she had that same feeling I had about knowing that she couldn't replace that bike. So the cops showed up a few minutes later and we described the bike and the guys. The cop told us, stay put, don't go looking for this bike in the projects. So as soon as the cop took off and rounded the corner, John John's mom said, get in the damn car. So we all hopped into her wood paneled station wagon, you know, the kind with the rear facing seat. And we took off for the projects. It wasn't just a couple minutes later that we found him in an alley. We chased him down. It was like that scene in Forrest Gump where they're chasing him in the truck, and he's running as fast as he can, and these guys take off, and they cut out, and they get in between these two housing projects, and the guy jumps off the bike, and he ghost rides it out into the middle of this grassy area between these two houses. My friend John John's mom slammed on the brakes, threw it in a park. She says, don't get out of the car. She got out. She ran as fast as she could to the middle of middle of that housing project, and before she could reach the bike, somebody else from another apartment ran out, jumps on the bike, and takes off. <laughs> I looked at my buddy, and I'm like, dude, your bike just got double ganked. <laughs> so the cop rounded the corner as soon as that guy took off on the bike, and after getting scolded for coming into the projects, he brought back the bike to us. He looked at me, she looked at me, and she said, all right, Matt. Now, I don't want you to point at him, but I want you to describe the person that stole this bike from you. And I said, it's that fool right there, that one right there. 
But that was it. My mom was tired of it. She got a transfer back to the middle finger. And we moved on a weekday in late August. I went to say goodbye to John John, and his mom answered the door. And she had said that they'd already started school, and he wasn't there. I started to cry a little bit. I knew I'd miss him a ton. And she gave me a big hug. She told me she'd love me and that I'd make tons of new friends when I moved up north. I didn't understand my new friends. They never locked their bikes when we went places. My friends' parents didn't lock their cars. When we went to the grocery store together, they'd leave the keys in the ignition. And they didn't understand why I wanted so many reflectors on my bike. It wasn't until one of them pointed out to me while I was locking up my bike that if someone was going to steal one of our bikes, it probably wasn't going to be my Huffy. <laughs> I bought my son a new bike this summer. You know, as a parent buying your kid a new bike, it's more than just getting a new toy. It's like getting a car at 16. A new bike represents freedom. I wondered if my mom felt that way every time my bike was stolen, that more than just a bike was stolen. And as hard as she tried to replace them, they just kept getting taken. I wonder if moving back up north secured that feeling of freedom for both of us. My son asked what to do with his old bike. I told him it was pretty beat up, so he could toss it in the dumpster. But before he did, he grabbed all the reflectors. In this next story, performed by me, I discover upon waking in a park one September day that it was time to make the hardest and ultimately best decision of my life. I don't know that waking up is what you could call that I did. Stirring, maybe my face damp with dew from the grass that I had been laying in. And as I came to, I suddenly realized three things. I was freezing. I had no idea where I was. And I had no recollection of how I got there. <clears throat> Without a thought at all, I jumped to my feet and I suddenly realized that I was outside. I was in this sort of dry, um, a floodplain culvert in a public park in my underwear. Pure panic settled over me as I struggled to understand where I was or how I got there. And I, I got down to the ground and I started groping around looking for my clothes, trying to focus and remember anything that would give me a clue as to what was going on. And I crawled around in the wet grass searching for clothes or glasses or a purse or a person or, or anything. And in my crawling, I, I noticed this dry, acrid taste in my mouth, one that, that tasted like cough syrup and malt liquor and whiskey and bile from digested pharmaceuticals. And in crawling, I noticed this dull aching beginning to show itself across the entire left side of my body. These deep, knotted bruises beginning to form. And after a time, I gave up hope of finding my clothes, and I scanned the rest of my body for signs of danger. And while I was still really too intoxicated to be in my body, I felt fairly certain that I was mostly okay, save from the left side that felt like it had been kicked over and over and over again. And I climbed the berm that was just ahead of me 
just outside of the culvert to see that I was in a suburban park, a familiar one. Diablo Park had been the scene of many high school milestones. Cases of natural ice and bottles of E&J and teenage sex and bonds formed with other delinquent poor kids holding on to each other for dear life. But that was years ago and here I was. And then a flash came to me of the night before. My high school sweetheart had come back into town from hopping trains for years. We had spent the evening together with some of his new traveling friends and both of our new drug habits. For old time's sake, we decided to play this game called Edward Forty Hands, by which you duct tape 40s to your hands. So you can't do anything until you've finished both bottles. That's 80 ounces of malt liquor for anyone that's math challenged. Um, so the game sort of ends with everyone racing to drink before their, bottle, their, their bladder stages a coup against them. And for a moment, I felt relief when I realized that I knew where I was. But that relief was quickly chased away because I still didn't know where my clothes were. And as I put my mind together more, it became obvious that I had somehow gotten separated from my group and that I had been robbed as I was passed out by any number of homeless people that lived in this park. I really must have looked out of place, laying there face down in a drainage ditch Nice shoes on, button-down shirt, glasses, tasteful suit coat, nice jeans. For a drug addict, I had always presented myself very well. And I'm sure that when the person came up and kicked me repeatedly in the side, thinking God knows what they were thinking, that I was some fancy downtown person who had come to slum it in their bum park, I'm certain that there was anger in their kicking. How dare I, they thought. Come to slum it? Fuck you, I'm sure, they thought. I'm sure that they felt justified as they kicked me and tore off my clothes and took my glasses from my face and my socks and shoes from my feet. And I'm sure they felt a little bit of satisfaction in letting my limp body hit the ground when they were pulling my jeans off, checking my coat pockets for money and cell phones. What they didn't know was that I was just a version of themselves. And what I didn't know is that childhood trauma doesn't always show itself in complete mental breaks. And that sort of deep human devastation that you might think of. And inside my well put together exterior, I had a growing opiate addiction. And in 2005, no one knew the opiate epidemic that oxycodone could, was going to spread across the country in the years to come. I certainly didn't know. What I knew is that I felt good and that the nightmares that had chased me through most of my life were quiet. I know now that children who experience what they call complex cognitive PTSD have a far higher rate of addiction than other people. I know now that there are whole areas of study looking at this exact thing, but then, with a life full of pain and no coping mechanisms, all that I knew was that I did things that felt good. So as I oriented myself and I began to walk in the direction of Joe's house, where my car was parked and where I hoped to find the people that I had been with, I suddenly became like a homing pigeon, get home. Get home, you must get to your wife, you must get home. You have a spare car key in your car, 
in your, in your purse at Joe's house. Your car is there. You can get home. And I walked out of the park in nothing but my underwear. And I could only imagine what I looked like, shaking from the cold and sickness of all the drugs that I had taken the night before. And all the liquor and the bottle of codeine and shaking and walking in the dark across a four-lane suburban thoroughfare past a strip mall, past the liquor store that I had been in the night before, just me, just little me, and four men buying too much alcohol. And I stumbled my way across this busy street to find myself in a subdivision that I had been in a thousand times before. It was the early hours of the morning. It was still pitch black outside, and I stumbled my way through the streets, and it all looked the same. Past houses that were just mirror images of one another, one an eggshell white with blue shutters, and its twin next door in slate blue with ivory shutters. And I stumbled to a house, and I went to open the door, but it was locked. And I knocked loudly, calling for Joe to open, but an elderly man answered. And I realized that my mind was still not clear enough to know what was going on, and I had come to the wrong house. The man stood there, shocked, staring at me, and I apologized and kind of tried to cover up as I, as I turned to run away. I spent the next 10 minutes wandering around this neighborhood, desperately trying to find a house I had been to a thousand times before. But I was so disoriented at how much everything looked the same that I began to get lost, and I decided that I would go back to the main road, back to the liquor store that I had been in the night before and ask for help. I was obviously in crisis and someone would help me, right? And as I walked out of the subdivision, still sort of staggering onto this major road, standing there waiting for a chance to run across the street, this man pulled over in a truck and he rolled down his window and asked if I was okay. And I was angry and I was confused and I told him to leave me alone and he assured me that he wasn't going to hurt me, but that I really looked like I needed help. And I could barely form a sentence, and I sat in the back seat of that King Cab pickup truck, and I held onto the handle, clenched, clenched around, ready to bolt at the first sign of danger. But he had this really deep, deep compassion, and he gave me the sweatshirt that he was wearing. And he drove me around in that subdivision for another 10 minutes looking for the house that I still could not find, until finally he agreed to drop me off at the liquor store because he was late for work. So I walked into the liquor store and I stood there, no shoes, no pants, an oversized sweatshirt, bruises covering my legs, these deep purple and green shining under the fluorescent lights. And I waited in line like a customer, feeling people's eyes on me and uh, people standing in line for coffee on their way to the work. And I got to the counter and I recognized the man. I recognized the man that had sold me liquor the night before, and I grew excited thinking, this man saw me last night, and I was not like this. He will know that I'm in trouble, and he will help me. And I went to the counter, and I pleaded with him. And I said, please, please can I use your phone? I'm in trouble. I don't know what's happened to me, and I need to call for help. And the phone sat on the counter between us, and he reached out, and he put his hand over the phone and drew it closer to him and said, absolutely not, with a look of disgust in his face. I pleaded further. And there was a man standing behind me that became sort of agitated at the clerk's callousness, and he offered me a quarter that I needed to make a phone call at the payphone. And I went over and I picked up the phone and I dialed the number and I put the money in, and the payphone ate my money. <laughs> and I went over to a homeless girl that was standing there panhandling, and I said, Please, can I have a quarter, please? 
she looked at me and said, I don't have a fucking home. I don't have anything for you. And another bystander saw, saw what was happening and, and gave me the change. And I went and, and I made the phone call and I, I heard ringing, 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 and then voicemail. By this time, the first signs of twilight had started to sort of peek through the day. And the only choice that I had was to go and try and find Joe's house again. This time, maybe a little bit more sober, a little bit more light. So I ran as fast as I could in my bare feet across the street to the subdivision, and I was finally able to navigate my way to the house. I saw my car, and I felt this immediate relief. It was my escape hatch. <laughs> I checked the door, and it was open, and my purse lay there on the kitchen table where I had left it the night before, and I, I found Joe, and I tried to ask him what happened, why I'd, I had been left in this park alone, but he was too incoherent to even understand the question. So I dug in my purse and I found a spare key and I got into my car and I began to drive home just as the sun was beginning to rise. And I felt this mixture of terror and relief as I drove and I was still in no shape to be driving. So when the turn to get on the, the business loop to get to my house came, I missed it. And I went to the next exit to turn around, and there was a drastic 45 degree angle and none of those handy little yellow lights, that, yellow signs that tell you that it's doing that, and I smashed into the median, <laughs> and I popped my tire. And for a second, I leaned my head against the steering wheel and I smashed my hands against it really hard and I cried. I cried three tears, and I beat my hands against the steering wheel, and then I told myself, nope, you know how to change a tire. This is nothing to cry about. Drive your car to that parking lot and change your tire. And so I did. Only the lock to open my trunk had seized and I had to rip the back seat out of my car with no tools to get the tire out. And I found in the back seat of the car an old pair of boxer shorts and one tennis shoe and I changed that fucking tire like a boss. <laughs> shaking and with this venom of someone who would not be defeated. And I finally got home and I was covered in grease and my face was full of fear and I was wearing a stranger's sweatshirt and a pair of boxer shorts and one Adidas shell toe tennis shoe. And I pounded on my door and my wife opened it and she looked at me with shock and disbelief on her face. And I collapsed sobbing, my body just heaving. I, I couldn't speak. I didn't know what happened. She held me for a long time, and I recounted what I thought that I knew, which had tons of huge holes. And later that day, I talked to Joe, and I found out the cops came, and we all dispersed everyone meeting back at his house. And I had run to a childhood hiding place and, and fallen asleep, where I had woken up in the morning. But I was so shaken. To my core, I was shaken, and I ran a bath, and I got into it, and I took a pill. I did. <coughs> I took an oxy, and I got into that bath, and I wanted to bathe it all away and just forget that it all happened, and I held myself close, and I cried, and I cried, and I washed myself, and I felt this deep fear that I'd put myself in such danger, and I felt really deep fear and I had to recognize that I had gotten lucky, that it could have been so much worse. And that all I had lost was my clothing. And when I came 
out of the bathtub, I looked at myself in this full-length mirror on the back of the door, the left side of my body completely covered in bruises. I was 50 pounds overweight. I hadn't taken a walk or read a book in six months. My face was fraught with fear, and I could feel that little tingle come up my spine of that pill that I had taken. But I stared at my face in the mirror, and I knew that if I didn't stop using right then, that I would die, that this was my sign, that I was dangerous, and that this addiction was dangerous, and that I did not have control over it and that I needed to change because no matter how destructive I could be to myself, somewhere there was this deep ability to survive. And that was the last pill that I took. I woke up the next morning and I was sick, but I was more scared than I was sick, and I've never touched it again. And that was 11 years ago last month. And I wish that I could say that <laughs> That was rock bottom for me, but it wasn't. But that moment, that horrible, terrifying moment, moment, I found this tiny bit of light in myself, this tiny little thing that told me that I wanted to be alive. I found a pinprick of light in the dark. And in the 11 years since, we have seen opiate addiction ravage this country, whole communities being ruined, epidemic of overdoses and HIV ravaging these what used to be these working class Midwestern towns, and I, I hear these stories on NPR, and at times I just break down and cry because I know that that would have been me. If I had not played Edward Forty Hands while on a ton of oxy and gotten rub robbed by a bum, that would be me. <laughs> I see my life now, and I have an overwhelming sense of gratitude and was the best gift wrapped in the shittiest package that I've ever gotten. Our next performer tells of a tragic family event that changed her relationship with her older brother. Here's Leslie Ty. Growing up, I always had a very complicated relationship with my brother, Justin. Um, on the one hand, I looked up to him immensely. At, at almost four years older than me, everything that he was into was absolutely cool, right? The music that he listened to, he is how I learned about the Beastie Boys and Henry Rollins. Um, in the 80s, when he got into breakdancing, I begged my parents to let me also go take like the community breakdancing classes. I was obsessed. I love to take his like hand-me-down t-shirts and make them into cute little mini skirt dresses with a little, with a little belt um, around it. Whatever films he was into, I wanted to watch. And that was one of the ways we really bonded was watching TV or film. And, and we also were really big animal lovers, both of us. On the other hand, my brother had a way of terrorizing me that never failed to take me by surprise. As kids, it was more of kind of just the teasing and the, and the small scuffles and, and um, physical things. But even his threats really terrified me just because of his sheer size. He was so much bigger than me. And when he got into his teen years, he had these occasions of just like extreme anger um, that really, really scared me. I remember um, 
one time him storming into my room just explosively angry, and I don't remember what it was for, and maybe it was valid. I might have done, I might have been a jerk. I don't know. But he came in, and he stomped on this phone that was in the floor and just smashed it. And I'm talking, this is like a metal, like, 1970s, like, desk phone. This is not some cheap little phone, and he just smashed it. Um, and he really kind of made this mark, you know, a couple places in the house, punching walls or punching doors. And I was just really terrified of him. Um, my only defense I felt being so much smaller is I would throw things at him all the time. So I'd like throw anything in my reach, pens, notebooks, like a plastic glass with, um, with uh, milk in it. I remember one time, one time it was a garden tool. Like it hit the window and broke the window and not his head, which was good. But, um, but I was really terrified. My brother and I went to the same school for um, 10 years. It was a K through 12 school. I started in kindergarten. He was in third grade. And I was always known as Justin's little sister, which, again, had good and bad to it. Like, I had some cred with the older kids because I was Justin's little sister. But I also always felt like that was, you know, something that defined me, and I, and I wanted to have my own identity beyond that. The year that Justin graduated from high school, I decided to apply to go away to school to come here to Interlochen Arts Academy for my last three years of high school. It wasn't really just that I, like, I wanted to get away from my family, but I really wanted to challenge myself and make my own identity and like, figure out who I was as a person. Had I stayed at the school where I was going to, I would have been the second student ever to go from kindergarten through 12th grade. And I didn't want that to define me either. So my parents found themselves as sudden empty nesters in the fall of 1990, as my brother went off to college in Southern California, and I went off to school up here. The direction that our paths took were so different, and that continued. Just like literally we were going opposite ways, and figuratively we really did. After being the driving force to apply to the school that I wanted to go to and um, you know, really having to convince my parents to let me go, um, I found this place where I fit in. Um, with all these other weirdos who were all wanting to immerse themselves in their art and really found like I've, who I was. And Justin had a rockier time in college. He ended up sleeping through most of his classes and flunking out and having to go back home to Colorado. Don't get me wrong, my brother is so smart. He's so capable and he always has been. It was never a matter of ability, it was a matter of believability. He's had this tendency to set himself up to fail. He thought he was going to fail, and he failed. As he has even said himself, it often felt like I was the older sibling, and he was the younger sibling, because, you know, at 19, he had no direction, no, like, desire for direction, and I had everything in my life had been leading up for me to find a life in writing and in film um, and in what I ended up in. So after a sophomore year that seemed to be all accolades and celebration, I returned my junior year, my second year of high school, while my brother stayed in Colorado. He was going to the community college there and, you know, trying to, trying to find some jobs and mostly hanging out in the uh, park with all his skater friends. He was a skateboarder. By the way, I also tried being a skateboarder because he was cool and he was a skateboarder. I wasn't very good at it. Um, 
it was kind of a, it was a tough year for both of us in different ways. Um, for me, it was kind of a second year slump. I started to question my reason for going away to school. I think it was really mostly it. It was like, I wasn't winning as many awards. It, it wasn't brand new and fresh. You know, I had a lot of self-doubt and self-consciousness about who I was as a person. And for Justin, it seemed to be he was stuck in this loop. He flunked out of college again, the community college, again, just like missing class and just kind of not putting any effort in. Um, and, you know, just seemed to continue to, like, disappoint my parents, disappoint himself, and kind of fulfill this, this prophecy that he was going to fail. To be honest, I really can't say that much about his life then. I, I didn't really know him. Um, you know, I'd see him at breaks. Um, and we talk about movies that we loved or watch movies that we loved, but I, I don't really know what his life was like. Um, sometimes he would send me a mixtape, and that was always the best. But when I got a call from an old friend just before spring break, I was taken by surprise, both because it was a friend that I hadn't talked to and I really didn't want to talk to anymore, an old friend that was, wasn't really a great friend, but more because of her reason. Hey, how are you, she asked. I'm fine. I wanted to call you to check on you, you know, considering. What do you mean? Wait, you don't know that your brother was shot? Yeah, that was not the news that I was expecting from her or really from anyone. And I was really angry at first because I hadn't heard yet. This had already happened at least a day, maybe more um, before. But I, I did have a, like a, an appointment to talk to my parents. They had like called and set up a time for us to talk. Again, you gotta remember this is the 90s, so there's no cell phones, <laughs> there's no email. <laughs> um, so we'd set up a time later that night, and I found out later it was because they would be there at the hospital with my brother, and I could actually talk to him and, and know that he was okay. So here's the story. My brother, like I said, was a skater. He had a lot of skater friends. They'd hang out in the park, and two of his friends were these couple years younger than him, probably my age. Um, these two kids, they're twins, and they were African-American. And there was this neo-Nazi skinhead who showed up, started showing up and really hassling them. And I believe the story was that they, he'd shown a, he'd flashed a gun at them and a lot of threatening to these, to these two young boys. So one night, my brother with, I believe it was the twins' older brother, who I think wasn't really friends, but was, but you know, my brother joined up with him to basically go try and confront this guy, Maggot. So they went to his apartment. I'm not really sure exactly what happened, but I do know that the older brother had a baseball bat that ended up smashing Maggot's car window. That led to some kind of car chase and where Maggot was pursuing them with his girlfriend in their car and um, shot a shotgun out the window um, at my brother, at my, the car my brother was in. He was in the back seat and he had to turn around right at the right time all the pellets came and he ended up getting several in the face. He got one in the hand, got one in the chin. And one managed to, to go right by his eye, but just at the right angle, it didn't hit his eye, but it severed his optic nerve and um, caused him to be blind in that eye. So spring break was not too far away, which is good. It was literally right around the corner. So I got to go home and actually see him. And it was really weird. <laughs> You know, to suddenly see this person who had been so large to me and to realize that he was vulnerable. I'd never seen him like that. I'd never seen him vulnerable. How is that possible? 
And beyond that, to see him as someone who maybe it wasn't the smartest choice for him to go try and take on this, this, um, this guy, Maggot, who had an American flag tattooed on his head, by the way. Um, but my brother felt deeply and passionately protective over the people he loved. You know, he had stuck up for me with other people in the past, not quite so dramatically, but it made me start to remember those times when he'd actually stuck up for me. You know, my, this discovery that my brother was someone who would stand up to a neo-Nazi skinhead, I was proud of that. But I think even more than that was this realization that, sounds weird, but my brother wasn't just my brother, but that he was a human being. That he could be killed, you know, just to realize that he had a beating heart that could stop. And it just made me realize no matter how much he screwed up, what happened in the past or what could, hurt, could occur in the future, that I was fully aware of his humanity and the fact that I loved him. And that's what was m most important, no matter what. From that time forward, if I got to see him or speak with him or be with him, it was an absolute gift. And even when he pissed me off, I just loved him. I wish I could say that this was the event that turned my brother's life around, but it really wasn't. Um, there was no real justice, first of all, and I think that was something that's, that really always haunted him. Um, Maggot got, like, I think some kind of uh, slight, uh, in s some slight trouble where he lived in a halfway house, but he didn't, he actually had no real jail time. My brother actually got a sizable settlement from the car insurance companies, which is really strange, but he actually made quite a bit of money, and then he blew it all. He just, like, squandered it all. He continued with this kind of loop where for the next over a decade where he would you know get a job things were going well and then he'd get in a fight or he'd get a DUI or he'd lose all his money gambling but I loved him he disappointed himself he disappointed my parents he had a series of girlfriends who we all really liked and he usually broke up with him because he would was not getting his life together but I loved him. And it took him a really long time to get his life together. He, had he did have successes at times. He's done some really cool things. He's moved around. He's lived in New York. Lived, he's lived in San Francisco. He actually has a tattoo now on the bottom of his lip with those, those different places that he's lived. So he's got his own weird things, too. <laughs> um, but um, it really wasn't until his late 30s that he grew up but I loved him, and really, I mean, you could say that about pretty much all of us, right? We didn't really grow up anyway until our 30s. Thanks. And now, Elon Cameron examines how grief has given her perspective on the beauty and tragedy of brand new days. I don't think grief is something that you get over. I don't think there's a cap and gown ceremony for that spring day when you graduate from life's grief. I think it's something we survive and we make space for and we listen to and we hopefully grow from. I think it might be that we just fill our lives with so much other good, so much 
vibrant living, I hope, that grief takes up less space. Like the song says, the sun comes up and we start again. It's all new today. When my dad died in June, he was 10 days from finalizing a divorce to his last wife. So, so chipper, right? <laughs> the stepmother who gave me lots of reasons to seek therapy since I was 11. After their 30 plus years of marriage, he finally saw the person that she'd been to me all along. It was tragic and sad and dramatic. She had him removed from the home with a PPO and he would never have seen his dog again unless we lawyered up, so we had to lawyer up. It's not what anyone would want. It's not what anyone should have to do when they're dealing with a dying parent. But as I'm learning, people choose different things based on their experience, based on how they frame and tell their life story and whether they're capable of doing their own internal work or not. I'm incrementally <laughs> getting over the stepmother thing. I'm moving on and doing my work. I'm focusing on letting go of dad, trying to allow him and his memory be the bright spot, be all the wonderful things that I remember, and the warmth and the kindness and the care and the hilarity and the constant exploration of the spirit world. I'm trying not to have an anxiety attack every time I have to shop at Family Fair because it's a block from her house. Today's her birthday, which is a really weird thing. And it's the anniversary of the year that I baked her a cake from scratch. And I made her frosting from scratch. Because I'd said, what do you want for birthday dessert? And she said, anything chocolate. And I brought out the cake. It was beautiful, by the way. Like, I really did a nice job. And she said, I can't believe you didn't make me cookies. And then in her icy, hurtful way, made it about my shortcomings how I'm selfish, how I never pay attention to anyone else and I never really listen. And the really fucked up thing is that even though I was 40 years old when this happened, I totally believed her. I don't miss that relationship. I'm here to say that you can let go of toxic people and you may even have to in order to be happy and well. I'm not sure, I'm still learning. I fully hope that some thoughtful mental health and family systems and social psychological theory work and research and, and academic rigor is being applied to step relations. And if any of you are step children or step parents, I wish you all the best. I totally think it's possible. If you can focus on the love that brought you together, you can do it. Needless to say, my dad's transition wasn't easy. I'm grateful that he died and Jen in my arms I'm grateful to have been there and known all of the things that happened in those last hours of his life. It wasn't unlike the many births I've attended in a weird way. The body goes through all these strange transitions and so many of them are so gross. The person inside the body seems to be going through some kind of fight to hold on or to remain in this flesh and they, that they've always called home, while these other esoteric forces struggle to release something from this place, this time and space, and then silence. 
no one tells you what to do when a loved one has died. You're sitting there in a room and the person you loved is dead, but their hands are still warm and they still have that expression on their face that they had. And no one tells you when you're supposed to go home. There's no rule, there's no conduct, there's no order. The, the really sweet nurse, Emily, was there with us when he died and, and she went and got the other nurse who's like the boss nurse who can like call the time of death, which wasn't actually the accurate time, which totally drove me crazy. And of course, when she walked in, she was like, oh my God, I remember you from high school. How have you been? I was baffled and just sort of shook my head. Uh, <laughs> I get it, she was just in the middle of her work day, right? That's just what she was doing that day. He died just as he said he would. One day he'd be walking around and the next he'd be gone. I don't wanna damage my cheerful reputation here, <laughs> but a bonus to this story is that last week my dog died. She was almost 16, so it's not like the saddest story ever. And really, she did live a life that any of us would be lucky and delighted to have lived. <laughs> but I'm really glad she died at home because we had control of what happened after that and we got to bury her in our yard. And I know some people think that's gross and I'm sure my mother-in-law thinks it's disgusting and creepy. But there's this thing in our society where we're just so completely out of touch with death that we don't even touch it. We're not even there anymore. It's like your dog died, okay, well we better call the people to cremate it. It's like, why, we're gonna drive this animal who's lived in this house for most of her you know, recent days to a place where they're gonna burn her body. It's just so crazy to me. Like having a decomposing creature you know, in my, porch, maybe, for a couple days is just a lot less weird to me. <laughs> but she had this really deep well of a presence, the dog. <laughs> she had this really snarky, judging way that she looked at me all the time that just kind of kept me on my toes. But she also had the sweetest Murphles and helicopter tail when I'd come home after being gone for a while. She was my familiar. She was one of my five favorite people in this whole world, and she's gone. Man, it's been a stretch. <laughs> my stepfather died of cancer a couple years ago. Not so much a parent, we called him my stepdude. If any of you know him, <laughs> he ran Keith's Cool Ride, which was a kind of an establishment in this town for a period of time. Before that, he was a tilt-a-whirl operator. <laughs> Bank of America took my childhood home away from my mom and he. Then my dad got sick. Dealing with his nearly ex-wife's shenanigans landed me back in therapy. I am so grateful for therapy. Our friend Leah, acupuncturist and yogi, the person that I've often been told is my doppelganger, got breast cancer and died. Dad died. 
Hallie, who I went to nursery school with, died. And then my dog died. I could really get stuck in some deep victim bullshit right now. Maybe it's the gift of my stepmother. Maybe it's because I know exactly what an embittered, victimized, betrayed, misunderstood by all, superior to everyone and yet never good enough person ends up looking like. A crazy person who for sport emotionally manipulates and abuses an 11-year-old girl. A tortured soul whose only course of connection and action is to harm and victimize out of their own deep well of pain. That puts me on guard pretty well for what's going on in my head. I know that grief and regret can turn anyone into a desperate, clawing drama junkie. Someone who sees the culpability of everyone around them and takes no responsibility for their own happiness. Sees no agency in the moment-by-moment -moment choices of maintaining one's own mental health because it really is our job. I know that more, the more I work on the fundamental truth that what other people think of me is absolutely none of my business. <laughs> Such a tough one. <laughs> the more I can be in this moment. And I know that even if this moment is full of shit sandwiches made of grief and disappointment, anxiety and pain, it's still better than numbing out, tuning it out, or pretending that things somehow are different. I'm also aware in the very fragile sense of a skill that one has not yet learned proficiently that doing this work requires a state of readiness to check oneself. Living in the present moment, no matter how painful it is, how uncomfortable it feels, and as much as possible, staying with it, leaning into the strain of sadness and exhaustion of missing dead people, and the realness of how vulnerable we all are all the time. I'm trained in Chinese medicine and have studied it for some 25 years now. Interestingly, autumn is the season that relates to the metal element, which governs the lungs and large intestine, the two systems by which the body receives and releases. Therefore, the season of autumn is the season of grief. It's a time of year when many of us revisit the transgressions of the of previous year, the horrifying, woeful, embarrassing things that we've done, or the losses that we've experienced, or just the general day-to-day -day things that have taken, that have come to pass. Um, and this is a season where our bodies can actually release and graduate from, in some way, that grief. But we have to do the work of feeling it. And so I think it's useful as we examine these things so that we can release them to get into the womb of wintertime hibernation so that we could emerge in spring, healthy, new, and strong. I've always thought the best person to write a training manual is the person just learning the thing. Best if it's the first time, because when we're learning something new, we have that magical beginner's mind. We're not comparing this experience or this information to anything else. And that sense of abject grief stands alone in its own experience. It's not like another suffering. I've had so many people in my life say, you know, my dad died 32 years ago, and it's even worse now than it was then. <laughs> right? I get that they're just trying to connect, right? The other people say, oh, man, I thought I was grieving for the first six years, but year seven hit, and I nearly lost it. I'm like, 
Awesome, thanks, that's so great. The only useful thing anyone has said to me is um, write on your calendar, make a mark at three months, at six months, at nine months, at 10 months, whatever is an appropriate measure to you. And then look back over the last few months and think about how things might be better. Think about how you might be remembering things with a little more ease. Or think about how that beloved person is still with you with some regularity. Everyone else says stuff to just dig into the pain. It's like, Urgh. And I get it, but it doesn't help so much. We have a couple rallying cries in our fam family. They're all in foreign languages. One of them is conjuntos. And it simply means together in Spanish. And the implied meaning is, we've got this together. Si se puede. The other one is in Japanese, ganbari masho. Let's all do our best. And it's based on the vow that we made to each other when we married, that we would not only bring our best to this relationship, that we would challenge each other to do our best in this world. And then the third one, one of my personal favorites is from Hebrew, the language that gave me my name, which is tikkun olam, to heal the world. This is the think globally, act locally notion. Message of environmental work, but also a reminder that when we do our inside work, our uncomfortable shit, that we heal ourselves. And maybe we make space for other people to heal. And maybe that's healing the world. So let's all do our best together. In this next story, Tony Barrow's brand new day turns out to be kind of a groundhog day that keeps leading him back to pianos. Well, uh, my story begins in uh, late summer, early fall 2008. I'd been managing Kurt's Pianos. Uh, if, if you were a local, you will know that piano story. That was my first job out of college. Uh, I went to school in Caldwell, New Jersey, graduated in the year 2000, not knowing what the hell I was going to do with a Bachelor of Arts in Music. So I did what any musician would do that lives on the East Coast within an hour of New York City. I moved to Traverse City, Michigan. <laughs> So anyway, so I considered myself pretty lucky to actually have a job basically related to my degree, surviving on my own. And uh, so, so yeah, so I had been doing that for about eight, uh, yeah, eight years, holy cow. And we had achieved a certain level of success. We absorbed our competitor, who was a friendly competitor, but a competitor nonetheless. And so a uh, sales force of me became a, a sales force of me and he. And uh, if you were paying any kind of attention in 2008, the economy really kind of took a shit. And pianos <laughs> are not a priority. Um, I was largely successful in saying, I'm, I'm gonna be, I'm a piano player for Pete's sake. You know, I did not, I mean, I was the kind of guy who was like, I, no, I'm never gonna sell anything. You know, I just don't believe in that, whatever. 
But pianos, yeah, yeah, I can relate to that. I love pianos. They're freaking amazing. They, they haven't changed in like 300 years. The design is exactly the same. I mean, and that's honest to God truth, you know? And I believe in music. I, I believe in the power. I know what it's done for me. It's been my best friend my entire life. It has been the one thing that will not ever go away until I, until I stop breathing. You know, my, my mantra is death or paralysis. That's what's gonna get, that's what it's gonna take for me to not make music. So it, selling pianos was actually pretty good. Uh, I'm not shy. So I uh, was able to build good rapport with customers. Uh, and that was one of the reasons that I was successful. Um, so between the passion of, of selling pianos and just being musical and being around musical people uh, and my ability to relate with people, um, we absorbed that competitor, yes, and we had our best year in company history, 2007. Uh, the recession hit and the store was surviving, but you know, I'm, a, I'm not dumb. I saw, you know, there was enough market share to support one person, not two. So clandestine Tony, that's <laughs> me, um, decided that I was kind of sniff out whatever other opportunities might come around. And so a customer had come into my store. She was an audiologist, really brilliant woman. We connected in a certain, uh, on a certain level. And at one point, I was showing some player piano, fancy, expensive. And her husband said, you know, you would be really great in audiology. Thanks. Okay, do you want to buy this piano? Uh, no. Okay, so moving on. So I remember really very clearly a Saturday afternoon, beautiful day. Saturday is usually our busiest day, and not one soul came through our door. And I was like, this is the moment. So I took that prospect's phone number, and on my way home, because I still had ethics at that point, and I said, I'm not gonna solicit another job while I'm working for the guy that I'm working for. So I took the phone number home, and I called her, and I said, do you remember when you came into the, uh, to the store, and your husband said I'd be really good at audiology? Do you think that might be true? So sh we, the, the conversation was, Yes, you, we, you know, I, and I'm like, you really need to know that I don't know anything about hearing, ears, uh, anatomy, how to test hearing, what hearing loss is like for people, or how to fit hearing aids. You got to know that, right? Um, I'm a piano player. She's like, don't worry about it. You know, I mean, this this conversation is basically a month long, kind of condensed into two seconds here. So, um, so. The long story made short is that, yes, she said, I, don't worry about it. I'm going to stitch you to my hem. I'm going to teach you everything that I know. And it's good. And I thought, well, hell, you know, med people need medical care. This is a, this is a pretty, pretty good field for me. Uh, and I think it's, it's good. And audiology in its purest form is really a sincerely good-hearted profession. Uh, most of the people that are in that profession are there. They, they turn the key every day because they want to make a difference in someone's life. I can relate to that. I, you know, I'm, I'm a positive kind of guy. I like to help people. Um, I'm, and I became pretty darn good at that. Um, one of the things that I learned uh, is that, you know, hearing loss really does have a profound impact on our own sense of self-assurance. Self, uh, self it affects every part of our, of our psyche. 
how we form words, how we learn. It can negatively impact uh, every relationship that you have, whether it's a friend or someone that's close to you. Um, it connects you with your entertainment. I mean, it's, it's literally uh, the one sense that works every moment of your life before you come out of the womb until you die. That's the only sense that's working all that time. So, I mean, I really made some really personal connections with people who have struggled to hear for a really long time. And I mean, so I like am invested in this, in this career. Um, now, audiology also has a bit of a dark side. And I'm not talking about the unscrupulous practitioners, the high-pressure salespeople, or the people that have good intentions but just aren't good at it. Um, that's not the dark side. The dark side is that it is a tremendously and profoundly disloyal profession. <laughs> it really absolutely is. Uh, manufacturers are out for market share, plain and simple. So you work for an independent audiologist, they're, they say, great, they will come into your office, they will pump you up, they will train you about the most amazing hearing technology that's, out, uh, that's on the market. Uh, but then they'll go and open up a franchise store a block down the road. You know, I mean, so it's that kind of real cutthroat competitive things about it. So there's tremendous pressure on independent audiologists. And so when you're a really good audiologist but not a great business owner or manager, what do you do when you're in an economic shitstorm? You hire a consultant. Um, and what do consultants do? Well, they analyze every single aspect of your business. They identify your strengths. They identify your challenges. And then they develop strategies to help you maximize your strengths while minimizing your challenges. Um, well, how do, you, how do you do that? Well, you measure. I mean, you measure everything. You measure like a pubescent boy trying to figure out what kind of a man you are going to grow up to be. How many inbound phone calls came in? How many of those could have been converted to appointments? How many outbound calls did you make? How many of those resulted in a scheduled opportunity? Do you know how many opportunities you need to have, to have scheduled every week in order to achieve your personal, professional, and financial goals? What is your conversion rate? How about your effectiveness ratio? Average selling price, return rate? These are all valid facts. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. They're statistics. The double-edged sword about factual data is that it's data. It has no emotion. It's neither good, it's not bad. It doesn't take into account what, who I am, right? Or, and it doesn't matter because it's just data. So data is information, information is power, and power can and will be used to manipulate you. <laughs> That's us. Do I sound cynical? <laughs> <laughs> According to data we've gathered, Tony, uh, from similar size practices, the average measurement of blah, blah, blah is so-and-so. And I see here that you are above blah, 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 or slash below your peers in this category. Are you open to training that will help you improve your fill-in-the-blank statistic? Are you willing to sit in on this training call so that you can help, so that your experience will help your peers in similar size practices improve their fill-in-the-blank statistic? I invite you to recall something I said before. It's an incredible experience when you see the relief that someone has when they have struggled to hear for so long. That was why I did what I did. That's why I came to work every single day. It is an incredibly powerful feeling. I'm a musician. A significant part of my existence hinges on highly emotional responses. 
<laughs> to sound, right? And making a difference in people's lives, right? A positive difference in someone's life. That was the niche that I was trying to carve for myself in that profession. Uh, and, and it was a profession that I always felt like a highly capable fish out of water. I wasn't an audiologist. I was a lowly dispenser. That's the title that they give you, a dispenser. Like, Pez, you know what I mean? It's like, my, that was not what I did every day. I didn't puke out hearing aids. Um, yeah, but that's what they wanted me to do. That's really what they wanted me to do. Um, and I became really increasingly squashed by these emotionless statistics that were trying to define who I am and suck the happiness out of this profession that I was trying to adopt for myself. And so that brings us to chapter two. Don't worry, I'm a consultant. Dr. Audiologist, we know that you've been under some financial stress and we're happy to see that you've taken advantage of our overpriced fee-based practice management products and those have done a tremendous job of streamlining your practice. However, your practice is in real danger and in order for you to achieve your personal, professional and financial goals, you need to make some tough decisions. Are you willing to make tough decisions? We've looked at the cumulative data of all of your employees and what we've found is Our meeting was held in the same office in which I was hired on the, on the understanding that I knew nothing about the anatomy of the ear and all of those things that I talked to you about before. And it was also the office where the promise was made, don't worry, I'm going to stitch you to my hem and teach you everything I know. And she did a really good job. I'm actually very good at fitting hearing aids. Um, those words screamed back at me as I looked away from her, unable to look her in the face, absolutely amazed that she had just fired me. My firing explained the pained look on her face when not 20 minutes prior I told her, hey, good news, I'd sold a pair of top-of-the-line hearing aids at full asking price. This woman was so relieved that she could hear better and told her the great positive story and I could just see the look on her face like, man, I suck right now, you know, and I didn't know what it was at the time, you know, because the meeting hadn't quite happened yet. Um, so a lot of what was said was a blur. Uh, but I remember her saying something to the effect of me, don't worry, you're going to come out ahead in the end. And the only thing that I could think back is, go fuck yourself. But I didn't say it, and I really I wanted to so badly, more than I've wanted to say that ever. Uh, but word of my dismissal traveled very quickly among my coworkers. Who knew that I was good at what I did? I, you know, again you really have to be a jackass for me to not get along with you. I mean, so uh, one incredibly generous coworker uh, offered to cut her hours in half so that I could stay on at least part-time. And that's, that is tremendous. She knew that I was newly uh, out of a really bad relationship. I had a son that I have joint custody with, and I was now the sole breadwinner. Uh, so she knew that I was in some transition, and so uh, I w went back to my best friend, music, right? I got a job, you know, to supplement my income by teaching piano, you know, and so I was kind of getting on my own feet again. And uh, the, it was really validating uh, to that I, I really should have just stayed with music because, again, it's been so faithful to me. It's never let me down, and I'm, I like to think that I'm good at it, you know, but I'm like starting to make a living at it. Um, 
part, one of the conditions of, of staying on with the, uh, the audiology practice part-time was that I now, instead of commuting from Manton to Traverse City, I now had to commute from Manton to Gaylord, 12 months a year, uh, an hour and a half in the summer and sometimes up to two, two and a half hours on a really nasty winter day. And I did that for well over a year. Um, so I had some, uh, I had a, a brief career in radio <laughs> advertising. The law, I don't consider that a failure because the only way to be successful at that is to own the radio station. Uh, but also, it gave me the courage to quit, to realize that, hey, this isn't for me. And um, at the end of the day, I had the courage to leave that life-draining, overmeasured position. And uh, now I'm in a position where I'm the slate is wiped clean. I've actually, two, two weeks ago, I took a part-time position at the, same at the reincarnation of the piano store that I started my career at. <laughs> so my last two thoughts with you are, sometimes your brand new day is Groundhog's Day. <laughs> uh, and unless you don't take financial earnings into consideration, uh, that former boss was right. I really did end up coming out ahead. But she can still go fuck herself. <laughs> See ya. In our final story, Daniel Stewart tells us how grateful he is to unexpectedly have another day with his ailing father. When the warning flashes up on my dashboard, I tell myself, this is not an omen. Um, I don't actually understand what the warning means. Um, undervolt warning. It's probably electrical. Um, there seem to be two exclamation points, but I figure that's probably because it's a German car and that's just the way Germans are. <laughs> so I'm 100 miles from home and my destination is 400 miles away. So the only sensible thing to do is to turn around, go home, take care of the problem and try, and, and try again tomorrow. Instead, and here I have to apologize to my wife, instead I take out my phone and while I'm driving 70 miles an hour, I Google my warning, and I begin looking <laughs> through, through message boards, and I see things like battery, alternator, there don't seem to be a lot of exclamation points, and nobody says emergency definitively. So I decide I'm just gonna keep going. <laughs> now, I'm driving down to Ohio to see my parents, but the thing is, my GPS is not set to the house. My GPS is set to the hospital, where my father is. This is a hospital I knew grow growing up. And like all hospitals, it's changed a lot, but I still know by its old name. So I'm heading to Mersey South. And my car is already misbehaving. But the reason that I'm going is not, is not actually because my father is in the hospital. Because for the past dozen years, he's actually been in the hospital a lot. He's, he's up for his second heart surgery. He's had five back surgeries. He suffers from a blood disorder that's sort of like leukemia. So I've just decided that every time he goes into the hospital and has an emergency, I can't make that thousand mile round trip. I just don't have the time. So the reason that I'm going now is because yesterday I talked to my mother and it was something in her voice. Now, um, some of you have heard me talk a little bit about my mother and she grew up, I mean, she had a very tough, 
growing up, she's had a really tough life. She grew up in, she spent her childhood growing up in the Korean War. And um, my mother emerged from it really tough. Um, she says the only thing she really regrets in her life was that she was ever afraid of anything. But yesterday, I was, you know, we were talking about my father's latest hospital visit. You know, he, went, he went in for a test, ended up in the emergency room, and they'd admitted him. Okay, th I've heard this story before a number more times than I want to admit, or even to think about, but when she was describing his condition, she started describing something that his body was doing. And she said, you know, this is the same thing that happened with my sister and with my brother-in-law right before they died. I can hear in her voice that she is scared. So I just say, I'll be there tomorrow. So I'm not turning around. When I'm about an hour east of Kalamazoo, the ventilation system of my car shuts down. It's 85 degrees. I just roll down the window, got to keep going. A few minutes later, there's a new warning. It's red. And all I can do is get off the road. So I know that um, I remember that my wife has a cousin who lives half an hour away. And she actually drops everything and comes to help me. And we get my car to her trusty local mechanic in her little town. And she takes me to a place where I can get a rental car. And I pick up a rental car. It's delayed me a couple of hours, but I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it there today. It'll be dark, but I'll make it there. When I pull up to the hospital, I mean, the doors are locked, but you know, if you wait for somebody, you can get in. And I make my way up to his hospital room. And it's really quiet, you know, the lights are low. There's, an there's, there are, there's a warning on his door, on the door to his room. So I put on a mask, I scrub up, and I go in. And my father's actually sitting up in a chair, and my mother's there, and she says, he's looking so much better. And that actually makes me feel worse because he actually looks, he looks really frighteningly bad. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody who looks worse, and I've absolutely never seen anybody alive who looks as pale as he looked. His skin looked like, when, you, when they say waxy skin, his skin looked like wax. And sitting in that dimly lit room, you know, with the white walls and all the blonde wood, the only bit of color in that room was the bag of blood that was dripping into his veins. So what can I do? I go over there and I wear my mask and I give him a hug and I say, hey dad, you look great. And he has to go to bed in about half an hour or so. Um, I head out with my mom, we're gonna head to their house. When I wake up in the morning, my mother's not there. Oh, she tells me over the phone. I tried to go to sleep and I started having nightmares at your father that he was laying in bed and, and he needed help and nobody was coming. So she'd actually headed back to the hospital about the time I was falling asleep. I must have just fallen asleep and missed the sound of the car leaving. And she had, and she had um, slept in a chair by his bed. That day my brother arrived, my older brother arrives. He's driven 300 miles up from Tennessee. And he's come for the same reason I have, because my father's dying and we're gonna be there. And in a hospital, time, is a weird thing. I mean, the, the, the nurses are coming in every half an hour to do tests, and it's sort of this weird, like, you're never doing anything, but you can never relax either. So my brother and I, we don't talk about emotional things. You know, like the only uh, life advice he's ever given me in my whole life was when um, I had a, a, a bad breakup in, in, in college, 
And I, w- I talked to him on the phone. I said, yeah, I just, you know, I just broke up with so-and-so. He paused for a second. He said, uh, don't listen to any sad music. <laughs> no, that was it. <laughs> so we're not going to talk about why we're here. We're going to fix this problem. We're going to find out what happened, and we're going to find who, th- th- who and how somebody is going to fix our father. Okay, because there's so many doctors, and we begin talking to all the nurses and all the doctors, the attending, the primary. You know, he has two RNs. And then both of us go to see the hematologist, the blood doctor who's in, who's in charge of taking care of this disorder. And it, it seems most likely that our father's immune system and his, his whole blood production system collapsed following one of his, his most recent chemotherapy treatment for this blood disorder that he has. So we want some answers, and we want to know what we're going to do in the future, how we're going to keep you know, everything fine. When we meet with him in his little office, he sits, on, he sits on his desk, and my brother and I sit there on the chairs. He seems oddly cheerful, and he says, oh, your father, he's done so well. My brother and I look at each other because our father's dying. And this doctor's so cheerful because he's explaining why he's so cheerful. He says, your father did so well because these treatments, I mean, your father has, has lasted for three and a half years, and that is longer than most people. And now it's done. And the thing is, I mean, we knew when he got the diagnosis that there was no cure, but he was getting these treatments. He was stable. So we had this idea, well, he's stable. This can last somehow forever. We don't have to think about it. He's fine. And the weird thing is, our father begins to get better. Very slowly. It's ironic because they're giving him eventually three bags of blood. And then they come in while while he's hooked up and they begin taking blood from the other arm. Because they're constantly testing him. And I I joke, they should just take it directly from the bag. You know, (laughs) save the middleman. But the tests eventually show that these drugs he's given him and all the blood is slowly starting to make him recover a little bit just enough that the doctors will relent and let him go. They don't want him to go home, but they will let him go home. And he wants to go home. So we, uh, we get him home. And he's not in good shape, but he's getting a little, we can see him getting a little bit better. So after a couple of days, my, my brother, he's very busy. You know, he's international exec. So he says, is it okay if I just leave you two, you know, leave you and mom here and go? I say, okay. He's going to come back for, for Labor Day. It's like in a week. It's going to less than two weeks. And a few days after that, I'm saying my goodbyes too. We're going to be back in, a, in 10 days. We're going to bring, back, bring our families up. We're going to spend Labor Day together. So it's a week after I've arrived. And my, you know, my father's sitting up, and I just give him a hug, and I say, okay, we'll see you in 10 days. And he says... I don't think I'm going to last that long. So all I can say is, you know, I think you're, you're looking better. And just do the best you can. Get back in the rental car. And midway in my trip, my, my wife's cousin again meets me, drop off the rental car, and I go pick up my car at the mechanics, at the honest small-town mechanics, where he explains that, yes, indeed, the alternator is shot, 
No, indeed, he could not actually fix it. So, do you think I can make the 250 miles back home? Well, you might. <laughs> you know, it's late afternoon. Nobody's going to be able to fix this today. I just want to be home. I call up a dealership and I say, so this is happening. This is the alternator shot, 250 miles. And he says, can I make it? And he says, well, you might. <laughs> okay, we'll see what happens. And that's why two hours later, this very nice woman is sitting behind the wheel of my car, steering as I push it off the road. <laughs> and an hour after that, I'm sitting in the passenger seat of a tow truck with my feet on a toolbox, and Roger's driving me, and he's got my car in the back. And we have a couple of hours, uh, of hours to get up here to Traverse City. The truck has no radio, but Roger is actually sort of a raconteur, unfortunate. So he's telling me stories. He's telling me about his time in the Army, He's telling me about how he was forced for his own safety to transfer to the Navy. He's telling me about, about more than a dozen years he spent as a repo man in Detroit. And those, those stories are really off the wall because he begins them with unexpected phrases like, well, the first time I got shot. <laughs> and he's, he's talking away, we're grinding our way north. And, you know, after more than an hour, he sort of, goes silent for a little bit, and he's looking a little sheepish, and he says, and he says oh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I just keep talking. And I know that he's feeling sorry because, I mean, he's been sitting beside a lot of people in, tow, in, in a tow truck, and the thing is that somebody sitting in the passenger seat of a tow truck is generally not having a good day. So I know that he's sorry for a lot of things. But here's the truth. I'm having sort of a great day. I mean, it helps that Roger's stories are really interesting. You know, because, I mean, the reason that you listen to other people's stories is because they've lived the life that you haven't. So you learn all these things about life that you wouldn't otherwise know. Like, because of Roger, I now understand that if you get shot with a Derringer, it feels a lot like a bee sting until you notice the blood. <laughs> but if you get shot with a crossbow, it feels like a goddamn crossbow. <laughs> but, but, but of course, the real reason that I'm feeling really good sitting in this tow truck is because my father's alive. You know, a week ago, I was driving south to go see him as he died. And I, now it's a week later, and I'm heading north, and he's still alive. And he is, he is not going to be healthy. He's never going to be healthy again. It'll be hard even being stable. I know he doesn't have much time. But the thing is, he's never had much time. This is just the first time I've realized the value of this little bit of time. And the thing is that Roger actually knows this whole thing about time, too. 
because in between his stories about you know the army and the navy and the and the repo man stuff, he's told me about his wife. Um, his wife was born with this with this congenital condition where um, she has really brittle bones, so she would break bones suddenly and in unexpected circumstances, like. He told it, they were joking around, and he told a funny joke, and she, sl and she slapped him on the knee, and she broke her hand. Ended up in the hospital. And there's lots of other sort of associated things that go on with this condition. So she, I mean, she, she, was, she suffered a, a lot of medical problems, and she was in the hospital a lot, and she was uh, in a motorized wheelchair to get around. And last month, she was in Missouri. She was visiting um, family and friends. And he got a call. It was a heart attack. She's dead. And she was in her 40s. So Roger understands this whole thing about how there's never enough time. Now, it's hard for me to explain any of this to Roger because not only does this truck not have not have a, um, a radio. It also doesn't have air conditioning, so we have the windows down, and it's really loud, and the engine is all worn out, so we have to drive it really hard, so it's just like a cacophony. Plus, he only has one good ear, so um, <laughs> the, the nature of my voice is that it does not carry over noise. So the only way I can communicate with him is actually to lean all the way over and sort of yell into his ear. <laughs> so I haven't been saying much, and he's, he's feeling sort of self-conscious about that. And by this point, we've just come off of um, 115, off that little traffic circle. And we're headed on the last long stretch here, up here to Traverse City, going up that long hill that leads up to Kingsley. When we arrive, it's going to be at the later end of twilight turning into night. But the thing is that when we pull into this dealership to leave my car there, my wife's going to be waiting for me. And she's going to pick me up, and she's going to take me home. And I'm going to be home tonight, which is actually the very thing that I wish for this morning. But all of this is a little too complicated to yell <laughs> into, <laughs> into a man's one good ear over the cacophony. <laughs> so all I can do is I lean over and I say to Roger, Roger, don't be sorry. Today, this is a great day. Thank you. For more information about Hearsay, visit us at hearsaystorytelling.com or find us on Facebook. You can also contact our creative director, Karen Stein, at hearsaytc at gmail.com.